It's a great privilege for me to be here this morning, worship God together. <clears throat> we trust that God has good things for us here this morning, <clears throat> has had already, and will <clears throat> continue to bless us. I've been amazed, I've marveled already, I know how many of you have some interest in looking in history, but the idea has had already and will continue to bless us. I've been amazed, I've marveled already, I know how many of you have some interest in looking in history, but... The idea of maybe a truth that has been tweaked just a, a little bit and coming out something very different. And we'll be looking at that this morning. And I, I feel like maybe I have, we have been somewhat affected by this. And uh, Satan knows that if he can, especially a central New Testament doctrine, where we can just kind of lay it aside, neglect it. Maybe he, he works in that way. Or maybe not understand it in ignorance or a little bit of distortion of how we look at this, this particular doctrine. Or it can actually be twisted to where it comes out to people interpret it exactly the opposite of what really the truth of God is. And, uh, Thinking about the Sunday school lesson and the plumb line, we start out there, and just how those people were so far from the truth. How could it be? They they had the prophets, they had the word of God. It just uh, again thinking of wrong thinking, wrong doctrine, and teaching how it can lead thousands, and uh, in some case millions in some case, billions of people that are on the wrong track and not lined up with the Word of God. And just how do we come out this morning? And, and we can be, we can tend to be a proud people where we think we have the truth, we have the sound doctrine, and, and that's a dangerous place to be. Uh, I thank God for a heritage we have and the truth that has been, uh, in a sense, been taught, you know, from from uh you know from wherever back from when I can remember uh but at the same time I, I think there's areas maybe where God would speak into our lives and, and show us uh a more accurate way of, of following his truth. And what I had in the mind this morning is is a precious word to me. It's a word that uh we want to look at carefully and, and I I tremble to do this because in my finite, a finite mean very limited ability to even explain the meaning of this word, and it's a word we find in the scriptures, that the word grace. Very simple word uh, to, to explain. If you were to explain to me this morning what the word grace is, just what would the explanation be? And I... I want to be frank and honest with you this morning. I myself have in times past maybe been affected by some teachings that are not accurate 
concerning the word grace. And, and I say this morning, I looked into it again, the precious words, very central topic in New, New Testament doctrine and theology. And uh, I hear it coming out wrong. And I think my thinking maybe has been affected by it. Uh, just a simple definition, and I, I feel like we're not even coming close to what all is it involved with the word grace, but it's a divine influence upon our hearts reflected in transformed lives. So grace is it's God putting something in our lives. It's his presence. It's his spirit. It's his manifestation of God working in human lives, and it, it results in transformed lives. Does that, does that ring a bell? Is that what your understanding of grace is? And I know, I know it spreads out into something much bigger than that. And I think the, the air that I've been detecting and I've been hearing it, it's been coming out, basically starts with the idea that grace and mercy are basically the same thing. And I'd like to present this morning, I trust I can make myself clear, that grace and mercy are both something extended from God, but they're two very distinctly different things. And if we think that mercy and grace are basically the same thing, I think we, we are on a wrong track. And I want to try to clarify myself in that. Uh, and I, this morning, believe that I do, standing before you, I stand in need of the mercy of God. And I believe as long as I'm in this flesh, I continue to stand in need of the mercy of God. And the mercy of God is simply where I fail, God can overlook my failure. Okay? And I don't know, maybe you're at a place where you don't feel that need, but I do. I very strongly and keenly feel that this morning. A need for God's mercy in my life. <clears throat> but at the same time, I like to say more that I experience and have the grace of God in my life, the less I need of his mercy. And if you're not following me yet, I trust that you will. And I'm going to use just a real simple analogy that, Heard this analogy back some years ago, and it clicked with me and might help us to understand that mercy is the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff after you fall, okay? And uh, grace is the rope that you grab a hold of so you don't need to fall, okay? Does that make sense? That's pretty simple, but it's important, I feel, this morning. Uh, there's there's a lot of theology out there about a wrong concept of grace, and I think it has affected us. And so, uh, you know, it's nice if there's an ambulance there when we need it, but one of these times you might fall, and you might not need the ambulance. It might be a need for the morgue and for the... Uh, Undertaker. So how often can we fall and get by with it? I'm talking now in a spiritual sense. 
Can we keep falling and expect the ambulance to be there, expect to pull out of it? You know, there's a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, and sometimes a lot of other people affected by if we happen to fall. And so I'm thankful for God's mercy, and uh, I need it. But can we lay hold of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that enables us to live where we don't need to keep falling? Does that make sense? So it's a doctrinal message this morning, but I feel like it's central to our living out a life that glorifies our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're going to look at a foundational truth in the doctrine of grace. So turn with me to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John. As we're turning, I'd like to mention that the Bible so often is its own best commentator. And I have done this yesterday, and it took some time, and I wish I would have had more time to do it more thoroughly. I went and looked through the New Testament every time the word grace is mentioned. And just do that, just process it, allow that the truth of what, in the context that the word grace is mentioned, allow that to penetrate your heart and your life and, and form a sound idea of what the word grace really is. You can do that with others, but I'm talking about now what I see a central doctrine. And I say central, you look at the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, and almost every one, I think, he started out with greeting them, desiring the grace of God upon their lives, and he ends up that epistle with the same thing, desiring the grace of God upon the lives of the believers he's writing to. That's a central doctrine, New Testament doctrine, and, and when I have, uh, one time I had the privilege of in a Bible Institute of, of teaching a series of messages on it, and I was blessed many years ago, and I'm ashamed how little I have taught on that since that time. How important it is and how often we can neglect, and I think the devil uh, can be behind some of that for allowing him to do that. Anyway, coming here to John chap uh, chapter 1, and uh, verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's skip over one verse down to 16. And of his fullness have we all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So, Foundational truth about grace. Grace is a New Testament word. Grace is a New Testament uh, doctrine. Grace was not available as we have today in the Old Testament. Now, you'll find the word grace in the Old Testament. Uh, for example, it says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That word grace here, I think, translates to some kind of special favor that Noah had that the rest didn't. That's not what I'm talking about this morning. We're talking about something different than that when we're talking about grace as it comes to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. A grace that was not available before Christ came. And we could, maybe we'll turn to this also. It's important, I think, 1 Peter 1.10. 1 Peter 
chapter 1, verse 10. I want to, I want to look at what the scripture has to say on this topic and uh, to understand more fully what we're looking at. First Peter, First Peter 1.10, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesy of the grace that should come unto you. So we have the Old Testament prophets. They're looking into the future and they're seeing a grace that was not yet available. It was going to come through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so grace comes to us through Christ. And grace, as we see here, uh, the gospel writer John, he says that Christ himself was full of grace. So it's a Christ-central theology or doctrine, something that Christ himself had that was made available or is made available to us through Christ. And that uh, we uh, have access to this. And, and I like to approach the scripture of saying, if it's something that's for us to have, have we are we experiencing it in the fullness that God intends? And I, I can be honest with you this morning, I'm not. But I see something there. I see something beautiful, something I have experienced, but I want more, and I know there's more for me. And as God's people, can we hunger, long for more of what God has, especially something as beautiful as the word grace. And just what, how does that translate into everyday living? That's important to us. So we look at one verse here in Acts, or we could look at more. We see just right away in the early church just what grace did. At Acts chapter 4, and here we know that there was persecution. Uh, the apostles were brought before the authorities, and, and they were already facing some some opposition there. And then they got back together and they had tremendous prayer there. Uh, verse 31, it said, as they prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude that believed were one heart and one soul, neither said any of them the aught of the things which he possessed was his home, but they had all things in common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Beautiful what was, what grace was doing to the lives of all the believers here. As we look at back at Acts chapter 2, there was already uh, 3,000 souls that had gladly received the word of God. So there was, then in the beginning of, of chapter 4, there was about 5,000 more. So it was great grace. And, and grace and people coming to the Lord they go hand in hand. We want to kind of end up there here this morning, just looking at what grace does for us. Romans 5, we want to look at verse 17. We'll probably go back to Romans 5 a few times here. Uh, Apostle Paul writes about grace uh, numerous times here to the Romans. I just want to catch here what, how he brings about, about the manifesting to them what, what Christ has made available. Verse 17, 
Romans 5.17, For if by one man's offense death reign by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign. The gift of righteousness shall reign in the life of one, Jesus Christ. And I think that gift of righteousness that reign in the life of Christ is what is available for us. It's, it's out there. If, whether you experience it or not, it's there for us. It's available to us through him. It's not any access. So, so the word grace, as we look at New Testament, is something that is a much higher standard, a higher standard of living for us. And so we go on down uh, to verses 20 and 21. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Now the carnal mind that reads this, as I understand it right, and I, I myself have struggled to grasp this. The carnal mind says, okay, so there's sin. There's sin in the world. We see it all around, but there's also can be sin in my life. And the carnal mind translates this to say, okay, so the more I sin, the more there's grace available to cover my sin. That's not at all what Scripture's saying here this morning. I, I just want to make that clear, but that's where people can go. So if sin is, is ruling and, and sin results in death, but somehow Christ came along and his grace is able to cover us. I can keep sinning and keep doing wrong and, and the grace of God is, is abundant enough that it'll keep covering as I keep sinning. Th this is where we're, we uh, can get into serious trouble. And, and I think the Apostle Paul, he had an extremely sharp mind, the Apostle Paul did, and he understood people could go there. And he goes on to say there, verse 1 in chapter 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? So the more we sin, the more grace is available to us. Uh, we're looking at this way wrong, if that's the way you're thinking. Because God forbid, how shall we that are dead sin live any longer therein? Uh, and we could skip on down to verse uh, 15. What then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace, God forbid. And someone has said, I'm not sure of the accuracy of this. It's In the original, it almost comes across saying, shall we sin even once that uh, grace should take care of our sin? And say, God forbid, not even once. So let's just picture this heart and so we have this heart here and there's two different options for this heart to be governed or to rule or to reign we have the word reign here reign simply means to be in control okay so uh the law that could this this could get extensive i can't this morning but the law simply points out what is right and wrong. The law in itself has no power to correct where the wrong is at. It can just reveal it, just expose it. 
And so the more it's exposed, the more we sin, and that in itself is a complex thing. Uh, the more that we know what is right and wrong, we keep doing wrong, the more it gets us deeper into sin, if that makes sense to you. If, if people that don't know right and wrong and they keep sinning and they maybe in a way almost blissfully and ignorantly just keep doing it. But when people are exposed to the law or, or to the plumb line of God and the truth is presented to them, but if the power is not there to live that out, the more you live in defeat, and, and, and that's what I think being under the law, and we see so much of it when Christ came, how people knew the right and wrong, but the power to, not, to live it was not there, and so there's a lot of hypocrisy that comes into the picture. And there can be in my life, if I, as a preacher, am exposed to truth and I'm preaching the truth, and if I don't lay hold of the power to live it out, then either I'm going to be honest and say I just can't do this any longer, or I'm going to pretend that it's working when it really isn't. And that's hypocrisy. So, this morning, everyone that's here, either you have sin rolling in your life, or you have grace, you can't have both. If sin is rolling, then grace is out of the picture. If grace is rolling, then sin is out of the picture. Does that make sense? Am I accurate in my, in my way of presenting the truth here? And maybe we'll just turn to this also, Jude, the, uh, the epistle of Jude. Verse 4. For there were, are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to the condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Turning the grace of God to lasciviousness. Cheap grace. Lasciviousness is just unrestrained lust. And I, I could put it this way, lasciviousness is a license to sin. And people can use the word grace and actually make it a license to sin. And I think it's happening in evangelical circles all around this land and other places too. Some people have said, and I, I'm not here, I think... Uh, Martin Luther has done much for the kingdom of God, but people looking back and looking at Martin Luther's concept of, of grace and, and of, of uh, faith versus works and how he came out where, you know, Catholicism was ruling in Europe and then the, the um, Reformation and I don't think this was at all Luther's intent, but almost gave the idea that I can have this faith that can allow me to live however and be right with God. That was the interpretation that the people said that Luther's Protestant Germany created a much greater moral decline than it was under Catholicism with their workspace religion. Not that, that I 
uh, would say that workspace religion was accurate. But just people somehow in their way of interpreting this book, they came across with the idea that we can live however we want and that grace is going to cover it. And so this morning when I hear people teaching and, and come across with the idea that somehow the mercy of God and the grace of God are the same, I, I think we're on that track. So let's be careful. I've heard this analogy used. I'm not sure you know, if it's accurate, but I'll, I'll just use it because I think it explains what I'm talking about this morning. That sometimes institutions that are for insane people, they have this test to discern whether someone is capable or if they're insane or they're not capable of, of, dis, of, of processing things right. So what they do is they give them a bucket and they give them a mop and then they go turn on a faucet and so this water's running. The same person is going to go turn off the faucet first, then you get out the mop and clean up the mess. The insane person will ignore the running faucet and they will go out there and they start mopping and they're mopping and they're mopping. And I'd like to apply that analogy to the way we can relate to sin versus grace that's available that we don't need to keep sinning. Are we sane enough to say that before we clean up this mess, let's turn off the faucet first. And how is it in my life? How is it in yours? Do we know how to go turn off the faucet? Are we just going to keep sinning and, and trust that somehow we can just keep mopping this mess up and, and it, it's going to work for us eventually? So the, the message this morning is that there is grace available that we don't need to keep living that way if we're struggling with the bondage of sin. Grace will never make allowance for sin. Grace becomes the answer to our sin problem. So let's turn back to Romans, uh, now chapter 6, we were there. I want to look at a, a key verse to, from my understanding of the word grace. Romans 6 and verse 14. And we look at the word grace and in its context, and, and this one I think is, is boiling down to what I understand to be a very important part of, of our understanding. It's a very simple verse here, I think we can understand it, most of us. That for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, under grace. So if sin is having dominion over us this morning, then we are not under grace, we're under the law. But if we're under grace, then sin need not or shall not have dominion. Sin shall not rule in our life anymore. The grip of sin is broken. That doesn't mean we'll never fail, but it means that we know where to go and to find a solution for the struggles we have. And it might depend, you know, if we're, we're new in this walking with the Lord, our struggles might be a different area. But sometimes we can fall into a rut 
And uh, I trust those of us that have a little experience or Christian walk know what I'm talking about. We can fall into a rut where there's things that maybe we just, we know they're not right and, and we just haven't been able to deal with it. We, we hear the word cheap grace, we know that's, that's not a scriptural term, and yet, in a sense, I think what we looked at the verse here in Jude 4, that's what, what cheap grace is about, uh, and the cheap grace doctrine's out there, and I, I trust we can reject it. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, 2 Corinthians 8, uh, the word grace comes up numerous times in this chapter, and maybe we'll come back to some of it. But I wanted to focus on verse 9. We already talked about grace coming through Christ. And I want to focus just a little bit on what it costs our Lord Jesus Christ to make grace available to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. There's a lot in this verse, and it's hard for me in my uh, rather limited mind to just lay hold of what all is being said here. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ was rich. We know he had his home in glory, and he's the creator, thus the owner of the universe. But we look at the, the creator owner of the universe hanging on that cross and ask the question, what did Christ have left? You could talk about dignity or you could talk about earthly riches or you could talk about uh, fame. You could just go on and on. Anything we could claim to be of some worth, is there any of it left? You know, had his mother, and he, he spoke to John and said, Behold your mother. He's giving his mother away on the cross. They strip him of his clothes. He's there naked. If he had any clothes, the clothes had any value at all, they were stripped from him. There was just, and being counted as the worst of sinners as, as a thief, and, and being the one in the center as, a, as the biggest of the, the the worst of the sinners, the worst of the thieves. Just, just what was left. And yet, through that act, what made available, that's why I stress the importance of understanding, it's a New Testament doctrine that was made available at the cross. And it's beautiful. Now we go to Galatians chapter 2. And, and in Galatians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul it hits the Galatians really hard because they had some false doctrine in their midst. And it was the idea, false doctrine basically was that you needed to be circumcised to be saved. And we could put something else in there. Maybe uh, it's a plain suit coat or something we put in there. You need to have that in order to be saved. And I, I trust we don't believe that. Oh, we might see value in it, just as we might see value in circumcision. But that in itself, and he told them very plainly that uh, that the, the gospel, verse 6, of, I should read that of chapter 1. I marvel 
that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ and into the grace of Christ into another gospel. They were rejecting the grace of Christ and putting something else there in its place. And we can be guilty of that. And then in, in chapter 5, he's told them, those that believe that circumcision was necessary for salvation have fallen from grace. They no longer have access to this thing that is so important in our Christian life. But now we go to Acts, uh, our Galatians chapter 2 and verse 21. The Apostle Paul says, I do not frustrate the grace of God for its righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. That word frustrate would probably be better translated reject. Uh, in, in Spanish, I have here desecho. Not many understand. Desecho means to put it in the trash can. I do not put the grace of God in the, in the trash can by going back to trusting that the law can get me right with God. Rejecting the grace of God and in Backing up to verse 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. That the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that talking about cheap grace, the Apostle Paul here is saying, if you want the power of Christ in your life, you need to identify with his suffering and his cross and his death. And just what that means in our everyday life, uh, it can mean something completely different for each one of us. But that we are willing to go through, with, rather than denying Christ, be willing to follow him no matter what the cost. That, that's identifying with the cross, being crucified with Christ. So Christ didn't do it all on the cross, but I myself am willing to be on the cross with him. By doing that, I have access to the power that Christ had. And if I decide to lay that aside, decide to, or choose to not go through with that, then I can reject the power of God or the grace of God in my life. And, and that's where the Apostle Paul faced tremendous persecution. He could have just said, well, okay, if, if you all think that this is so important, uh, it's okay. We know he went all the way to Jerusalem to talk to those people that had settled this problem he had with the Galatians about this issue with um, circumcision. And there's a lot more involved than just circumcision. It was where were they putting their trust in for their salvation? And that we can challenge each one of you this morning. If you believe this morning you're here and you're saved, where are you putting your trust in for your salvation? And if it's something aside from the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're on the wrong track. And let me skip over a few things here. In Hebrews 12, it mentions about... i put it in my own words that we're going to be facing the judgment, the living God, and, and what we have done with the grace of God was play a big part in, in where we're going to come out. Romans chapter 5 and verse 2. 
I'm going to talk a little bit about how we access this grace. I'm going to try to make it simple here this morning. Romans 5, I'll read verses 1 and 2. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith unto his grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So Apostle Paul is saying we stand in the grace of God. How do we access it? It's by faith. And just another real simple analogy, supposing that I've never experienced this, I've met people who have. They've been on, in third world countries where people have been in tremendous poverty. But supposing that I'm the head of a home and, and times are really hard and I just absolutely have nothing in my house, no food, and I have nine children and I'm responsible to get them food. So I hear the gospel, I hear this good news, I hear that on, on the west side of Harrisonburg here, that there is food. Now, when I hear that, I could, first of all, decide whether it's true. That can't be true. And uh, we've been involved with the food ministry. My wife was more than I have. And, and I literally have ha handled tens, maybe even hundreds of tons of food. And the people that we were distributing to weren't needy in the sense that, duh, we could say they were desperate to the point of starvation, but there are a lot of needy people around us and people that even have a struggle to, to find the food they need for today. But what I'm saying by this is I need to believe it. I need to have faith that it really is true. And if I don't, I'm not going to even take two steps towards the other side of Harrisonburg to get this food. But I believe it's true. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to get where that food is at. And I'm going to maybe check, first of all, whether I qualify. I know there's people that were, were involved with food ministries. There's certain requirements in order for them to receive help, uh, do with the amount of income they had and the amount of children, etc. Do I qualify? If I do, I'm going to believe it. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get there and get that food and get it to where it's needed in my home. And so that's where faith comes in. So this morning, uh, talking about grace, how much do we believe that we need it? How much do we believe that it's there for us? How much are we willing to, to go and do whatever it takes to get what, is, uh, what it takes to, to have this abundant grace in my life. And we could go to Ephesians chapter 1, where it talks about the richness of his grace. And here again, I don't want to take up too much of our time this morning. But along with that, it talks about the redemption we have and the forgiveness of sins. How much to you this morning, how important is it to know that it is true, the forgiveness of sin. And you could ask the rich man uh, there in, in uh, Luke chapter 16 where it talks about rich man and Lazarus. How much, how much value would the rich man today put in the forgiveness of sin if it was still available for him? And we know it's not. 
And we, he wanted to somehow access it for his brothers, and he could not. But this morning, how valuable is it to you that you have access to the forgiveness of sin? And if it's not valuable to us today, and someday we stand before the judgment seat and realize the reality of the condemned, how important is it? How, how much is redemption worth to us? Where we no longer redemption is, has much the same to me understanding of, of being free from the bondage of sin. We have been redeemed from the, the binding power that sin has in our lives. That's what redemption is. If sin still has, is controlling our lives, then we haven't experienced redemption. Or perhaps we have experienced it, but somewhere along the way we have been careless and have lost it. So we access this faith through, or access this grace through faith. And, and faith is so important, and it, it covers many different aspects of life. And I want to just look at a little bit, we need to finish here shortly, being ministers or stewards of. And we were in 2 Corinthians 8, and I'd like to turn back to that a little bit. I, I trust this morning that we were anxious to and desiring to and, and longing to and, and striving to experience this grace in our life. And it's for as we see the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, how it was not for himself only, it was something that was made available to us. And that's it, the concept I would like to have of grace. Grace is something I desperately need for myself, but as I long to minister to others, the more I can experience, the more I can have the abundance of grace in my life, the more I have to help other people out of the bondage of sin. 2 Corinthians 8.19, and this is Apostle Paul's writing about Titus. Titus was sent to them. In verse 19, and not that only, but who was also chosen of the churches to travel with us with this grace which is administered by us to the glory of the same Lord and declaration of your ready mind. Not sure if our minds are sharp enough this morning to follow the thought here of the Apostle Paul. The, the Apostle Paul sent Titus to them, and he sent them sent him with the intent to travel to the churches there, to the Corinthians and maybe elsewhere also, to administer the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this, this, uh, this beautiful divine influence of life that I have in my life, I want to minister it to others. And uh, that's what he was sending Titus to do. Now, 1 Peter 4.10, we have Peter mentioning a few times this word grace also. He says, 1 Peter 4.10, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 
Now you all know what a steward is, I trust. A steward is not the owner. So I, suppose I have this farm, and this farm is in another country, it's in Peru. So I can't be in Peru, I have a farm in Peru, but I can't be there. So I could put someone else there, he's not the owner, but he's the caretaker, he's responsible. And I can maybe give him $2,000 and say this 2000 or 10000 or whatever, this is my money, but I give it to you and you're responsible to use it and for the good of this farm, that this farm can prosper and, and, and may be profitable. Now, we're not talking about earthly riches here. We talk about something much more valuable. But Peter here is encouraging those he's writing to that they use this manifold, the word he uses here, which means something that's multiplied over and over and over again, the grace of God, that we be good stewards of it, that we use it for the good of kingdom building, for the good of the salvation of souls. And as Jesus told his disciples, freely you have received, freely give. The more we can freely receive, the more we can put ourselves in line to receive this riches that come from the throne of God, the more we can just let it flow out to bless others. And that's a longing, a desire that I have. And it has to do especially with salvation. We look at a few verses there yet. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. You will notice if you look into the word grace, that grace and salvation are very, very closely tied together. Titus 2.11 For the grace of God hath, that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And it goes on to say, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. Looking to that blessed hope of the glorious appearing of great God and Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. That's what grace is intended to do. That's what it should be doing. And the more we can experience it, the more I think we'll be blessed. And Ephesians 2. We're coming close to the end here when I look at Ephesians 2 as it is a central part of, of the doctrine of grace. Uh, I think we'll break into about verse 5 here. Maybe verse 4. We have the word mercy in verse 4, which is important. Maybe we should have a whole message sometime on mercy. It's a beautiful topic also. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sin, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, hath raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through, Jesus, through Christ Jesus. For by, by grace are ye saved through faith, and not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, 
which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. So it's by grace that you and I are saved. The more we can experience grace, the deeper the work of salvation can be in our lives and the more we can be used to be instruments to bring a deep work of grace into the lives of others. Something that I long for, to be used in that way. And uh, there's been this doctrine out there, I haven't heard so much lately, it's probably still out there, the second work of grace, where people actually experience, where maybe they were born again, and, and there's a, they experience a new birth, and it's a beautiful thing, then somewhere later in life they have some kind of experience with God, where God does a deeper work in their life. And we have been somewhat, what's the word? uncomfortable with the teaching second work of grace and uh, I'd say this morning that I believe in the second work of grace but it doesn't need to stop there uh, if we think now we've got it because we got second work of grace I think God has more and I, I long for God the impression of God on my life where he can do a deeper work of grace maybe it's a second maybe it's a third maybe it's a ten but God can keep doing a work and, and his the impression of this influence is divine, this godly influence in my life is transforming me to be more and more like Jesus. It's beautiful. And it's grace that can do that. A beautiful thing. And I'm going to finish up here just looking a little bit at the Apostle Paul and his testimony. 1 Corinthians 15. We know the Apostle Paul was in my mind, one of the used men, one of the most effective and, and long-looked-up-to Christian of all time, but he attributes it not to anything he himself. He knows that he was a persecutor of the church, not even fit to be called an apostle. Uh, I think First Timothy 1, he talks about that too, but here in 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 9 and 10. It says, For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Does that make sense to us this morning? We look at this man, I mean, everywhere he went, he planted churches, and there's church left behind, uh, probably used for thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people converted, I don't know, we really don't know, but, and, and we, we today, how many people are still being converted and, and being brought into the kingdom of God through the writings of the Apostle Paul? He said, it's not me, it's the grace of God that is in me. It, it's that divine influence, this thing that God has done to transform my life is, is what you're seeing is the result of it. And the Church of God needs Apostle Paul today. Church of God needs men that are full of the grace of God and uh, can be used in thinking especially for kingdom building and, and planning churches. And, and today uh, we struggle. We struggle to get souls in the kingdom. We long to... And I think that some of the key can still be we can lay hold of what grace of God really is for us and what it can do for us. Shall we stand for prayer?